the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
The Tom Sumner Program.com. And welcome back, uh, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, my guest this hour is going to talk about uh, the uh, heart transplant he had three years ago and how his determination uh, kept him going, um, as he does in a new book called Courage, Powerful Lessons in Leadership, Strength, and the Will to Succeed by John Spurzel, who joins me by phone. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Tom, thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. And and I'm glad to hear that you're doing better. <laughs> I'm doing really great. Um, can Just to put this all in context, exactly what happened? You were out of country when you suffered... Uh, um, basically a heart attack but the diagnosis was something somewhat unusual and then just the the process of uh, um, surviving and getting to uh, a place where you could have your heart transplanted was uh, kind of an adventure in and of itself Uh, explain what happened Well, the story started, ironically, on Easter Sunday, which was April 16th, 2017, and I happened to travel to Aruba that day with my girlfriend, Rhonda. About 12 hours into our trip, in the middle of the night, she heard me make a loud noise, reached over, and found me unconscious and unresponsive. So I was taken to a local hospital in Aruba. I was cardioverted, which is electric shock applied to your heart stabilized at the hospital, med-flighted to a hospital in Miami, Florida, spent 10 days there, and ultimately ended up at Mass General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And and why Massachusetts? Well, I'm from the Boston area, so I know Boston is one of the best hospitals. Massachusetts General is one of the best hospitals in the world, and I knew that I had a serious issue and wanted to be in the best place that I could, could get to. Now, where was the the diagnosis? It, 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 what was the diagnosis? How rare was it? And when and how was that diagnosis made? The diagnosis is called giant cell myocarditis. It's an extremely rare disorder. In fact, one of the world's rarest. It's been diagnosed approximately 300 times in medical history. And unfortunately, it typically leads to death within four to five months. So I had a very grave diagnosis. It was actually diagnosed on my fourth day at Mass General. I had three surgeries in the first four days. The diagnosis came on day four. And later that afternoon, I was actually placed on life support. And on a list for a transplant. Absolutely. And then how long did it take before a heart was available? And how, how long did it take um, for the initial recovery? What kind of uh, um, rehabilitation was required? I spent 55 days in a cardiac surgical intensive care unit at Mass General, eight of those days on the life support system. I had several surgeries before the heart transplant. After I was on life support, I had to have my chest cut open the first time where they put in what's called a left ventricular assist device as well as a right ventricular assist device. So at that point, my my heart was completely controlled by machines. 
I spent only about five weeks on the heart transplant list. One of the major criteria in getting a heart, of course, is that it is a match, but also it depends on the critical illness of the patient. And I moved up to number one on the transplant list simply because I had very little chance to survive. Heart transplant was the only way that I would survive. And, and the recovery, if you want me to just talk about that, Tom, yeah, is if actually you, if you pretty could, straightforward. Sure. I, I, one of the complications that I had, and really the only one that I had after the heart transplant, is I lost all the nerves in my lower legs, so I wasn't able to walk. I spent about 29 days in an inpatient rehabilitation center to learn how to walk again. And being a pretty competitive guy... And being the CEO of a public company at the time, I had researched how many CEOs had ever had a heart transplant and how many had come back to lead a public company as CEO. And I could only find one, which was Oscar Munoz of United Airlines. And I had read that he went back to work in a couple of months. So I set my sights on that. And unfortunately, I was able to get that done. And what what occurs to you when... When you come out of a surgery like a heart transplant, what what are your first thoughts? Is um, is it oh I'll never get back to the life I had, or I've got to get back to the life I had? What what's going through your mind at that point? Well, I'm a big believer in attitude can affect your outcome. It's one of the things that I talk about in the book. Yeah. So I had a positive, John, I, had a, I have a <laughs> phrase for that that I use called, and it goes, uh, mind over what's the matter. Absolutely right. I love that. <laughs> and so I, I always had my sights set on a positive outcome. I really maintained a positive outlook throughout the whole experience, despite the fact that I had a very grave diagnosis and the probability of survival even was extremely low. I always set my mind on coming back, leading the company where I had previously been the CEO. I was on a medical leave of absence, of course, during the ordeal. But just always had a positive attitude and always expected to come back to the company where I was. And, and was that, in fact, T2 Biosystems where you're CEO now? I was actually leading another public company where we were focused on infectious disease testing. We had developed some products that dealt with some of the serious crises around the world, HIV, syphilis, Ebola, Zika virus. And one of the things that I really had to come to terms with when I was sitting in the hospital knowing that my survival depended on someone else's loss, uh, and that's a really hard thing to wrap your head around, was what am I going to do to pay this forward? And I made two promises even before the transplant when I was hopefully awaiting a, a positive outcome. One is that if I survived, I was going to do something meaningful to pay this forward. That was a promise that I made in honor of my donor. And the promise that I made to my heart transplant surgeon, and I had no idea how I was going to deliver on it at the time, was if you save my life, I promise I'm going to do something to make you proud. And I didn't know what that was at the time, but that really is what led me to leave the company where I was and join T2 Biosystems. And why T2 Biosystems? T2 has the only technology that is approved or cleared by the FDA to detect sepsis-causing pathogens directly from whole blood. And one of the things that happened to me after I had my heart transplant, while I was still in the hospital recovering, is I got several multidrug-resistant bacterial infections, one of which led to sepsis. And while sepsis isn't well-known around the world, 
it's actually the number one cost of hospitalization in the United States and the number one cause of death in U.S. hospitals. And just to put some numbers around that, we spend about $62 billion in the United States each year fighting sepsis. And sadly, we lose approximately 270,000 Americans. They die in hospitals with sepsis. So this is part of how sometimes in, when you deal with adversity, it's not so much what happens, but it's what you decide to do as a result of what happens to you that really matters. And for me, a guy who had spent 30 years advancing life-saving products in healthcare, my passion really intersected with this tragedy or adversity that I faced and became my purpose. And I decided to direct that towards solving the sepsis crisis. More about the will to succeed with the author of Courage, John Spurzel. Straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. 
They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More about the will to succeed with the author of Courage, John Spurzel, straight ahead. John, uh, the fact that you had always, well, that you had been working in and around the the healthcare field, did that give you more or less faith in a positive outcome as you were going through all this? It gave me a tremendous amount of faith in a positive outcome. I know the investments that that companies and that investors make in science and technology, and and I just had a lot of confidence that ironically, the very things that I had spent my life doing would turn around and help me have a positive outcome. Now, in the book, um, Courage, Powerful Lessons in Leadership, Strength, and the Will to Succeed, you credit um, a, a business model as contributing to your survival and suggest it as a possible path to others. Um what what is that business model? So I the book just maybe to set it up a little bit. I I wrote the book for three reasons. One, I wanted to do something to honor my heart donor. It was a commitment that I made again when I was in the hospital, and and the other two sort of go hand in hand. One was to raise awareness about the importance of organ donation. Uh, a sixteen year old young man made a decision to become a donor and save my life. And the other was to raise awareness about sepsis, which I described as a real crisis, which also kills 11 million people each year around the world. And so the first part of the book is my story and my journey. The second part of the book are these powerful lessons or what I might describe as principles for success. And they focus around an acronym that stands for HEART, H-E-A-R-T. And the H stands for hard work. The E stands for excellence. The A for attitude the R for resilience, and the T for teamwork. And I talk about various lessons that apply to life, business, sports, and have been part of my path to success in each of those areas. And I think they really apply to the folks that might be listening to the show. Approximately how long was your life interrupted by this event, from from the time you had the heart attack to the, to the day you were back on the job? And... And were you function, functioning at 100% when you returned to work? So I say all the time that I am the luckiest person on this planet. I have 
heard so many stories of people that needed an organ transplant, whether it was a kidney transplant, lung, which we've seen many cases during the COVID crisis, or a heart transplant like myself. I was in a very tough spot. However, mine was very concentrated in terms of time. Uh, as I said, I spent 55 days in a cardiac surgical intensive care unit. I received a heart split transplant. I spent 29 days in an outpatient rehab, about a month at home rehab, and then I was right back to work. I was on a plane to Brazil and, and basically back in my seat and, and traveling the world, advancing life-saving products. So very little interruption, and that's why I'm incredibly fortunate. So really within, it sounds like within somewhere three to five months. I technically went on the medical leave of absence on May 31st, and I was officially back as CEO on October 3rd. I will say that every day that I was in the hospital, with very few exceptions, of course, when I had major surgeries or when I was fighting pneumonia, I worked from my hospital bed. And it wasn't to try to be a superhero. It was simply to try to stay mentally focused on, on something other than fighting for my life 24 hours a day. And did you were you conscious of fighting for your life or, or, or were you um, somewhat automatically driven to... Um you know, take on some of those those projects uh, from your hospital bed, um, just um, out of um, a need for the distraction? I think it was a little bit of both. My personality is very hard-charging, if you will. <laughs> I was also the CEO of a public company, and I had made commitments to shareholders, and, and I take those very seriously. So there was a little bit of both. I will say I also was fighting hard to be my own best advocate within the hospital system, and I think that's something that I encourage all patients to do when I go into hospitals and speak with patients. When I was faced with being placed on life support, the normal standard of care is to sedate the patient into a medically induced coma, and so most patients have no idea what that experience is like. I challenged that standard of care and asked if I could remain awake while I was on life support, which is something that certainly hadn't been done at Mass General Hospital or, or probably throughout the U.S. And it was simply, again, not to be a superhero, but to, if I'm in the fight of my life, I'm not going to take a nap. I'm going to stay awake and I'm going to fight. And while it was a tough thing to, to do, I think it certainly had something to do with the outcome that I, that I achieved as well. Now, a lot of times these kinds of uh, experiences are unique to the person going through it. To what degree is that true for you, John, and, and to what degree is what you went through uh, what uh, transposable to uh, other people's struggles? I think every person's experience with a life-threatening illness is unique. Obviously, in this environment today, we have so many people going through through things just like that. And, and sadly, many of the people that are critically ill, hospitalized patients with COVID end up dying of sepsis, which is multiple organ failure caused by this viral infection. And And so they're all unique. I think that the lessons that I take out of it are very transferable to people it's, it's partly why I wrote the book, because I think that these lessons can help others that might be 
dealing with adversity or might be trying to find a path towards success. And, and I think these five principles really apply, and I give real lessons to, to help understand, for example, what does hard work mean? Most people say, well, I know it when I see it, or I know it when I don't see it. But there are actually principles that people can apply to lead to, I'd say, better hard work. Right. Well, what, what does that mean, especially um, in, the, in the context of uh, administration? I mean, most people, when you hear the, the phrase hard work, they think of, uh, I don't know, working on the railroad or construction or something that's, that's very physical. I describe it in the book as a five-step process. It's, it's setting a goal, you know, being very deliberate about that goal that you set, planning and preparing. Sometimes we use the word preparation and planning, but it actually goes the opposite. First you plan, then you prepare. I talk about practicing how you play. I was a college football player, and my coach used to say all the time, if you want to get faster, you have to practice running fast can't go out and run a mile and expect to run a 40 in 4.5 seconds. It doesn't translate. And, and you, you play the same way you practice. So you can't practice at 50% and go out and expect to execute at 100%. You have to put forth your best effort. It doesn't mean be better than the next person. It means be better than you were yesterday and be better the next day. And then the one thing that most people miss about hard work is it is a process and, and it's a cycle, and you have to debrief, you have to review, and you have to get feedback, just like you might watch a game film as an athlete and go out and apply what you've learned from that the next time. So that's a way that I define hard work, and it makes it tangible for people. So it's not just this mythical, mythical thing where I say, I know it when I see it. Were, were there any um, limitations for you going forward you talked about having been an athlete I, I, I are you able to run a marathon now or or um have have you had to cut back physical activity a little bit the only limitation that i have is is the lack of feeling below my knees in both legs mm. so i i don't use the word can't i would say it would be difficult to go run a marathon it would probably be somewhat clumsy that I might fall, but the benefit of not having any feeling in your legs is I am an incredible cyclist now, and I intend to compete in the World Transplant Games, which is like the Olympics for transplant athletes, and I think I have a very good shot in cycling to win a medal. How many people are walking around with uh, transplants these days? I know the number in heart. It's about 20,000 people in the United States that are living with a heart transplant. Really? I don't know the statistics on all solid organ transplants. Well, I was just curious to get some, some kind of idea, and that, that brings it into perspective that it's um, so much more common than it was just a couple of, uh, just, just a very few decades ago. Absolutely. Well, even at Mass General, where I had my heart transplant, I believe their first heart transplant was in 1985, and I was close to the 500th heart transplant that they had done, and mine was in 2017. So we've really come a long way since the first heart transplant was done in the 1960s. Um, John, well, I'll just remind the listeners that I'm talking with uh, John Spurzel. He's written a book about his experience uh, 
having and recovering from and getting back to work after a heart transplant. Uh, the book is called Courage, Powerful Lessons in Leadership, Strength, and the Will to Succeed. And John, how how critical is the will to succeed and how much control do we have as individuals over that will? I would say in my case, and I take that part of the book very seriously, and I think it ties back to attitude. In my case, it was really the will to live at first before it was the will to succeed. And I felt that a positive attitude would really be a difference maker. It's always been a difference maker in my life. I, when I talk to people about attitude, I say the, the coolest thing about attitude is it's a choice. And you can literally choose your attitude every single day. If you don't like the attitude that you had yesterday, choose a different one today. And if you don't like the one you have today, choose a different one tomorrow. And, and I believe that attitude is directly connected to outcome. Imagine I was in the hospital laying on my back in the intensive care unit. My, at some point, I was on life support. Of course, I was awake, as I said. I knew I needed a heart transplant. My diagnosis was incredibly grave. And at the nurse shift change at 7 o'clock in the morning, the day nurse shift would, would come into my room and ask how I was doing, and I would say, awesome, or fantastic, or terrific. Those are my go-to words. And you could see their faces light up, and they must have been thinking, wait a second, this guy's on life support. We know that he has very low chance of survival, and he's telling us that he's awesome? I mean, that affects <laughs> their day. That affects their day. And, and I could see them light up when I acted like that. And, of course, am I awesome every single day of my life? Of course not. I deal with challenges just like anybody else. But I know that when I walk into a room, and we've all seen this, People can come into a room with energy and it affects the entire room or they can come in and suck the energy right out of a room. And we've, we've all seen that person that is on either side of that equation. And for me, it's just a choice. I just choose to be positive and I see the, the outcomes from it. And I certainly saw it going through the journey that I went through that was really life-threatening. How much of the, the book is... Um specific to people going through something as serious as you went through or or transplants in particular um, versus a any sort of challenge that a person is facing? I think what I talk about in the book, these five principles, hard work, excellence, attitude, resilience, and teamwork, apply universally. Of course, I have a very unique story because I went through this life-threatening illness. I received a heart transplant, of which there are only somewhere between two and, and, and 2,500 done in the United States each year. I got diagnosed with a very, very rare disorder. So I have a unique story, and it helps set the stage for the rest of the book, which I think, again, are universal. Business, sports, school, life, I think they apply universally. And and these are things that um, that that anyone could benefit from, regardless of what they're going through. I believe that sure. Um, the process of writing the book had you had you written any any books or or done any writing before, or was that a whole new adventure for you as well? 
Well, as a public company CEO, I, I write a lot, and, and a big part of my job is communication, whether it's with customers, internal stakeholders, shareholders. So I take communication very seriously. I had never written a book. I had never considered writing a book. I had told my story several times publicly. I told it the first time for the American Heart Association as a fundraiser. It was incredibly well-received. And the more I told the story, the more people told me that I needed to write a book. And again, I never considered it. It was sort of my story. I felt it was unique to me, but I kept telling it and I kept getting convinced to write the book. And a very good friend of mine who had also written the book pushed me over the edge on it. And I decided to, to pull the trigger and move forward. And and what was the, the writing process like? I mean, did you... Um... I, I would think to, to look for a template of some sort. So I found a partner to help me do that. And she's a professional. She owns the company that published the book, Merrick Publishing. And it was a process that took a, approximately one year. Keep in mind, I have a pretty full-time job and a, and a pretty rigorous <laughs> schedule. So I, I mostly worked on it at night, on weekends, whenever I had time. And it's, it's like any other project. You, you plan, you prepare, and then you go execute. And it starts with what kind of structure do we want the book to be? What do we, how do we want to convey a message? What do we want that message to be? And, and you start to build a skeleton, and then you start to fill the content. And it's an iterative process, which I would say gets better week after week, month after month. Did uh, did you get the bug to to write future books? I haven't yet. We're we're really in the early part of launching this book, and as I said, I think the book can be a terrific platform to raise awareness about the importance of organ donation, to raise awareness about the risk of sepsis, and quite frankly, to honor my donor. And I'm really excited about that. And when did the book publish? We launched it officially on March 30th, which was a very specific date. It happened to be my heart donor's birthday. Ah, interesting. And um, what kind of, have you had a chance to get any feedback yet from the book? I have. The feedback has been terrific. The reviews that we've received on Amazon have all been really positive. I've had a lot of friends and family read the book who partially know my story and they were still blown away by the details in it and the lessons that I put forth. Did you, you know, despite the fact, John, that you were awake during the time you were on life support and, and conscious of a lot of what was going on around you, did you have to do any research or, or any significant research to fill in some of those uh, details? I did a lot. I... Would normally, I was laying on my back for most of the 55 days, and I started out trying to hold a laptop above me and do research. I dropped it on my face a few times, so I switched to an iPad. And I would research as much as I could every time the doctors or nurses stepped out of the room. I had never heard of giant cell myocarditis. It's not surprising because it's so rare. Most healthcare professionals had not heard of it either. I think Mass General had treated one case in 200 plus years. So 
there was very little data available. It was obviously a grave diagnosis. And I just tried to do everything that I could to prepare myself for a positive outcome. I paid attention to what the doctors and nurses said. If they told me to try to move or try to exercise in my bed, I did everything that I could. And this, I took the rehab the exact same way. They told me it could take three or four months to learn how to walk. As I said, I, I finished that and left rehab in 29 days. So I, I take very seriously what I talk about in the book when I talk about setting the bar at excellent, when I talk about hard work and attitude. Uh, these are things that I live in my life, and, and they really help me through this crisis too. Well, John, this is a remarkable story. The book is uh, called Courage, Powerful Lessons in Leadership, Strength, and the Will to Succeed. Um, but it really, the don't judge the book by the cover, because there's a lot in it about John Spurzel's uh, um, remarkable story of uh, overcoming um, the odds, really. Um John, I always uh, we're we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, uh, reading the book is is a great place to start. But uh, do you have a website, or is there a website for the book? There is a website, johnspurzel dot com, and I would encourage readers to go to Amazon. The book is available in hardcover, paperback, Kindle. I also personally did the audio book. So if they want to hear the book in my voice with my tone, they can certainly do that. And the other thing I would encourage people to do is educate themselves on organ donation. I can tell you that I was sitting in my hospital bed, and this sounds somewhat hypocritical, knowing that my life depended on someone else's tragedy and someone else having had the courage and had made the decision to be an organ donor. And I was not an organ donor at the time. I registered to be an organ donor from my ICU bed in five minutes online. It's that simple. And I, 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 I'm not going to ask people to go become an organ donor, but I would suggest that they get educated. And if they make that personal decision, that's fantastic. It saved my life. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, in the book and this morning with our, with our listeners. It's, uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. You too. Once again, that was uh, John Spurzel. He is the CEO of T2 Biosystems, a position he uh, rose to um, or or transferred to, I suppose, after having a uh, uh, certainly life-threatening heart event. And um, he wrote a book about his... basically will to succeed in and to uh, recover not only recover but to thrive in the wake of a, a very serious heart illness uh, and needing a heart transplant the book is uh, courage powerful lessons in leadership strength and the will to succeed and we'll have more of the tom sumner program straight ahead <music> Bye. 
down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Today. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. 
a place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond, where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmers market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. (laughs) The Bickersons have retired. As usual, Mrs. Bickerson tosses restlessly while her husband, John Insomniac Extraordinary, provides this audible testimony of his constant wakefulness. Let's listen. the love of heaven, what is he doing? John! 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 What's the matter with you? You are making the most frightful noises. What's the matter? What's the matter, Blanche? Are you in pain? I've got a terrible headache. Haven't slept a wink. You've been sleeping like a felled ox. Head aches. You wouldn't have such a headache if you didn't make so many cocktails before dinner. Why do you do that, John? Always do it. Why? No good to eat on an empty stomach. Put out the lights, John. The lights are out. How would you know anyway with that sleep shade on? Well, something's flashing in my head. Ow! Take an aspirin. Okay. Hmm, feel better already. How can you chew those things like that? Wash it down with something. All right. Ah. John Bickerson, you washed it down with bourbon. You ride the knee. You've got the lights on. Yes, I'm going to keep them on. Sit up. I want to talk to you. Please, Blanche, I can't sit up. My head will fall off. Why do you always have to talk in the middle of the night? When else can I talk to you? You come home for dinner and bury your head in the paper. Never a word out of you. And you tell me you've got to go to bed early because you have insomnia. Well, I have. It takes me hours to fall asleep. It took you all of 30 seconds tonight. Well, this was a good night. Good night. John. John. Hmm? I went over to see the Marvins' new baby this afternoon. It's a beautiful child. 
Do you know their first one is over a year old? I hope so. He's been walking since he was eight months. He must be awful tired. I am too. Children are such a blessing. It's wonderful to watch them grow up. You'd be surprised how many childless couples are adopting children. I'd better have another aspirin. Boy, have I got a headache. John, Hmm? don't you miss the patter of tiny feet around the house? No, I don't, Blanche. Children are wonderful, all right, but you have to be able to afford them. All this talk of adopting. What the devil is that? What's what? That. Put the lights on. John... Blanche, don't tell me that you went out and... It's and only a dog, silly. A, a dog? What do we need dogs for? I got for? a little puppy. Where's the aspirin? What did you get a dog for? Now, don't get hysterical. Where is the little beast? I can hear it, but I can't see it. He's right there, in the bureau. I've got him in your shirt drawer. You put him in there with my shirts? He won't suffocate. The drawer's open. Blanche, you know I'm allergic to dog hair. It gives me sinus trouble. Where's the aspirin? You are just a big hypochondriac. You imagine those allergies like you do your insomnia. I tell you, I'm allergic to dogs. They make me... make me... Get rid of that thing. He'll whine all night and keep me awake. The man said he'll keep quiet if you give him one of those worm pills. Well, where are they? On the night table by your bed. How do you give a dog... Where... There on the night table by your bed. There's nothing here except the aspirins. The aspirins are in the medicine cabinet. How can they be in the... Blanche, what have I been eating? No wonder my headache won't go away. Why do you do these things to me? Send for a doctor. Don't carry on so. If they're good for a dog, they won't hurt you. Go to sleep. Go to sleep, she tells me. Here I am dying from dog poisoning. My, my head is splitting. She knows I'm allergic to dogs, hides the aspirin, and makes... I don't know. Get up so early, never get another wink of sleep as as long as... John? John? Hmm? Gesundheit. Thanks. I can see how much sleep I'm going to get tonight. We'll have to get rid of the puppy. Now you're talking. I want you to take him down to the dog pound. Okay, I'll do it on my way to work. You go in the opposite direction. Well, I'll go out of my way. You say it, but you won't do it. You better take him now. What? Go on, get up, take the puppy to the dog pound. Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's after two in the morning. They're open all night. Go on, get up and take him. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. You know I went to bed with a splitting headache and had to take a dozen worm pills to fall asleep. You'd take the dog to the pound quick enough if Gloria Gooseby asked you to. How do you always manage to work the conversation around a Gloria Gooseby? Well, if you wouldn't shout so much, maybe the puppy would be able to sleep. What's the use? Good night. I thought it would be nice to have a little dog, especially when we move into our new apartment. Still have a year to go on this one. Our lease expired on Friday. I renewed it yesterday. I canceled it this morning. Amos is raffling off the apartment for me. That's a good idea. Amos is what? Amos sold 500 tickets at $2 a piece, and the winner moves into our apartment tomorrow. Oh, Blanche, no. I... I don't believe it. We'll be on the street. Amos said he'll find us a new place in a jiffy. Jiffy? Haven't you heard there's a housing shortage? Where would he find a place? Well, I bought a ticket myself. It's a wonderful chance. Lovely three-room apartment, large kitchen, big closets. It's worth $2, and we might get it. Get it? We've got it now. I know. But even if we didn't win, we get the $1,000 Amos collected for the rest of the tickets. 
Look, Blanche, I gave the landlord a $1,200 bonus to renew the lease. So now I'm out $200 and I've got no place to live. Sounds like pretty poor business to me. Why do you make such deals? Now look, Blanche... The trouble with you, John, is that you are too conservative. Look, Blanche... If you'd pick up some of the deals that Amos has, we might be able to live as nicely as he does. Blanche... He's been living at the Biltmore Hotel for a year. He sleeps on a billiard table. Look out. Where, where's my slippers? What are you going to do? Let me get to that phone. I'll show... Ow! Ooh! Ooh! Put on the lights. The lights are on. Open your eyes. Oh. Here's, here's the phone. I know it's going to ring, and I want to be ready when it does. Hello? Excuse me. Drop dead. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't Amos. I'll get it, I'll get it. Amos. Hi, Jacko. What are you doing up this time of night? Packing, Amos. We're moving, haven't you heard? Why aren't you going to invite me in? I'd like to look the place over. You mean... Yep, I won the raffle. Darndest luck I ever saw. Who drew the ticket, Amos? Fair and square. I wouldn't take a chance having some phony draw it, so I drew it myself. What a coincidence. Get out of here. What's the matter with you, Jacko? You got a thousand dollars coming, and if you're worried about a place to live, I'll rent you the garage. You haven't got a car anymore, you know. Get out of here before I hit you with a cleaver. Okay, Jacko. You don't have to get sore. You better give the money back to people you sold tickets to, or you'll have a lot of explaining to do. Not me, brother. You'll have to do the explaining. I'll tell them you won. Good night, Jacko. That guy will wind up on a chain gang as sure as... Was it Amos who won? I did. Now at last I can go to sleep in my own bed without worrying. No, you can't, dear. The dog's in there. But, oh, nuts. I'll sleep in the garage. Good night, John. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hey, that wraps it up for this pre recorded edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Thanks to uh, all of the guests who were on. This last hour, uh, John Spurzel talking about his recovery from a heart transplant and his his book, uh, which is called Courage, Powerful Lessons in Leadership, Strength, and the Will to Succeed. And uh, before that, we talked with uh, the author, uh, debut novelist, actually, uh, Dion Martin, talking about her book, uh, let me get the title right here, The Wool Over Their Eyes. A story of uh, a biracial woman struggling to find love, family, and faith in the shadow of lies. And we started out this morning talking about uh, poetry as good medicine, as featured in the uh, book called Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life, from uh, author uh, 
Norman Rosenthal, M.D. And there's Smokin' George. Uh, winter's tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But uh, despite the fact this was a uh, pre-recorded edition of the show, all of the interviews were exclusive to this show. And uh, tomorrow, we're going to celebrate Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. We'll have uh, science and science fiction and uh, just a whole lot of fun stuff for Star Wars Day. So... Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.